For our message this morning, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. You um, will look at me and wonder why, on the frame of my glasses, the right leg has some kind of thing there. It's, it's, I had a little mishap with my glasses last night. I put them on to eat, and they wouldn't stay on as they should. So uh, we, my wife and I have this little contrivance. Uh, hold them in place because my fear was how am I going to do this and that's going to be interesting so you know what it is I'm not, I haven't taken leave of my senses it is not a fashion statement it's uh, just a means of helping keep glasses in place 1st John chapter 2 verses 3 through 6 is our text for this morning let me read these verses in your hearing set them in your mind By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. But the one who says he abides in him, ought himself to walk in the same manner, as he walked. Our subject this morning is assurance of salvation. Spiritually speaking, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are regenerated and those who are unregenerate, i.e. those who are born again and those who have not experienced the new birth. Scripture gives us the ability to distinguish these disparate groups of humanity. 1 John, in particular, provides tests for people to determine who is regenerated and who is not. The passage before us is one of those texts that provides a test. It provides this test in a moral sense, and in fact it has been classified as a moral test test. Now the tests are necessary. They're necessary for those first readers of 1 John, those who were in the church at Ephesus. For that church had been infiltrated by false teachers. It had been invaded by those who didn't know him. They were called Gnostics, and they claimed to have elevated spiritual knowledge. They had a higher level of divine truth inaccessible to the ordinary rank-and-file Christian. That would be you and me. These elitists found it necessary to be unconcerned, to be unconcerned with moral conduct, conduct and godly living. They found that utterly unnecessary. On the contrary, godly living is the product of are fruit of divine truth residing in a person. Holy, obedient living is the result of the new birth. In other words, such living, such conduct, such holiness is indicative of the saving knowledge of Christ. So, we come to the test of obedience, which lays out this 
statement that I just made, it clarifies it for us. It makes it for uh, clear for us to know. Verse 3, it says this, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's a straightforward statement, is it not? The water is not muddy here. It is as clear as an unpolluted stream in the unpopulated areas of our own country. The verb translated know is from the Greek word gnosko. Gnosko denotes to perceive something by experience. That's what the lexicon says, to perceive something by experience. And the word is also in the present tense, conveying the idea that this perception, this something that we perceived is an ongoing uh, reality in our life. The question immediately comes to the mind of uh, the attentive hearer and reader of the word of God with this knowledge is this. What is that we are perceiving about ourselves? What is it that we are perceiving? What is that something? Well, the text provides it for us. It says that we have come to know him. As we continue our Christian life, as we continue to walk with Jesus, we perceive that this reality is that I have really come to know him. That's what we perceive. That's what we begin to understand. And this continuing realization that we have is this, that we have a saving knowledge of Christ. We are the ones who truly have him as our Lord. Now, how do we know this? The conditional statement makes it clear for us how we can know this. It says, if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. And that's very, very important. If we keep those three words, that phrase denotes a watchful obedience. And I think that's important for us to grasp. A watchful obedience. It's not the idea that I know what they say. It's the idea that I know that they're there. I'm watching to make sure that I obey. It's watchful obedience. The word can also be rendered safeguarding. We safeguard what we deem valuable, don't we? We protect our valuable things. We do whatever is necessary to keep them safe because they are precious to us. And this is the idea behind this. For the believer, he safeguards, she safeguards the word of God, the commandments, because they are precious to him or her. Psalm 119 verse 72 is one text that states this and it comes, uh, is translated that word translated precious by the New International Version of Holy Scripture. The word of God is precious to us. Uh, The word of God is more valuable to us than the finest gold, the most refined uh, metal gold. It says in Psalm 19.10 that that much gold, much gold. In fact, for the believer, if you read Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, you will repeatedly find it saying, uh, the psalmist writing about how he delights in the word of God. Delights. It's repeated, repeated over and over. He even says in one case, Psalm 119, I said, oh, how I love your law. 
There is a relationship that happens in the life of a believer with the word of God because they have been transformed by the grace of God and it does something to you inwardly in your relationship to the word of God. You love the word of God. You delight in the word of God. It is precious to you. It is valuable to you. You come to the New Testament and you hear similar language. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 Verse 22, though he struggled, he couldn't keep the word of God 100%. He wanted to. That was his aspiration, but he failed because he had sin dwelling in him as all people here in this, on this planet as Christians have. But he said in Romans 7, 2, that he joyfully concurs with the law of God. Joyfully. He, he didn't look at the word of God and say, I don't care for that. I, that bugs me. No, he said, I joyfully concur. I joyfully agree. Now here, when we come to this text, the Apostle John, he specifies here commandment. He uses a different Greek term um, here. And the Greek term for commandments here is um, an injunction, an order, a directive. And it's an injunction, an order, directive that comes from Jesus Christ. And you can see in Matthew chapter 28, 19 through 20, Jesus gave an order, did he not? He gave an injunction. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's a reality. Now, why is this the case? You, you need to ask the question, why is this the case? A person would keep his commandments. That we come to know him when we do this. It's because only regenerate people keep Christ's commandments. Only people who have been born again do this. Such people do so and can because they have a changed nature due to the saving work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. We have new life. They have new life in their souls. They have a new heart. A new spirit that is disposition. A disposition that's different from the one they had prior to the transformation that took place with the new birth. They have new affections and new desires. They've been transformed. Regeneration, this is what it does. The new birth it does this. It delivers from the condition into which we were born. Namely, we were born with a corrupt nature. We were dead in transgressions and sins. That, yes, that's how we were born. We came into the world. Our parents loved us. They thought we were the best thing since uh, sliced bread. But the reality is we were born corrupt. We were born with a fallen nature. We were dead in transgressions and sins. Our minds were corrupted by sin. Our will, will was depraved and enslaved by sin. And our affections were corrupt. To state it another way, we were it's total depravity. You cannot understand anthropology, the study of man, unless you have a biblical anthropology. What I mean by that, you've got to see man as God declares him to be. If you think, think the problem with man is sociological, you think it's psychological, you're missing the point. No, it's theological. You see, the reason we have the problems in our world that we have all manner of sin we see, the problem is men are sinful. They were born depraved. There is no such thing as 
all people are basically good. That's a lie. The word of God says men are basically evil. We're corrupt. That's why the new birth had to happen to transform us, to free our wills from enslavement and bondage to uh, sin, our minds, our hearts. All of that has to be freed by the liberating power of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. So, if you want to know, is this really true? I've already alluded to it. Just look around, be aware. By nature, we were sinful, we who were believers. And by nature, sin expressed itself in sinful actions. Say amen if you can. Because that's true. People sin because they are sinners by nature. That's why they do it. That's why they have sinful thoughts. That's why sinful things come out of their mouths. That's why sinful actions take place among them. That's why people do the things they do. You can watch programs on television like 48 Hours or 2020 or whatever your favorite one. You can hear some heinous crime going, how can they do it? I have a simple answer, sin. I I don't sit around wondering. I say, I know what the problem is, depravity. Depravity. Because that's what the Bible teaches. So if you have a biblical anthropology, you understand the problem with man. Moreover, this, as I've already said, is theological. It's theological. Ephesians 4.18 says this, alienated from the life of God. Men are alienated from the life of God. Men are separated from God. The life of God is not in them. They're dead, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in transgressions and sin. That's a theological problem. And it cannot be solved except from a theological point of view perspective power god himself has to do it amen it cannot be done any other way our transformation if you're a believer here this morning the reason you keep the commandments is not because you decide to wake up and be a better person it's because you've been raised from the spirit from spiritual death you are now transformed by the new birth The Holy Spirit, he came and he changed you. And now you have a new heart, a new affection, a new mind, all of that. And now you love that which you once despised. And you want to do that which which you once wanted to do. Now, let me again say this. This was essential, essential for the life of a person to be able to do this. Jesus said in John 3, 6, Quote, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Let me unpack this for a moment. When Jesus said that which is born of the flesh, he's talking about human reproduction. All sinners can do is reproduce after their own kind. In other words, they just reproduce sinners, right? Human reproduction, all sinners do. What is born of the flesh is that is the flesh. Human reproduction. Born of the spirit, that is what the spirit does. New spiritual creature. That's who you are as a believer. Because of this transformation, uh, because this has happened to you, that's why you keep his commandments. If you're doing it, that's why. Moreover, it's a wonderful thing. The keeping Christ's commandments aren't a burden. 
First John chapter 5, verse 3, it states this. His commandments are not burdensome. They are not grievous. We don't have a problem. You see, because we've been changed, we delight in his commandments. We want to do his commandments. We want to please Christ. You see, that's the reason we do it. That's the reality of who we are in Christ. Now, you need to understand something. This, this text here is telling us um, or it's habitual obedience. Habitual. And when we have habitual obedience, we have assurance that we have come to know him. That's the title of the sermon, Assurance of Salvation. When in your life you perceive there's habitual obedience that's characteristic of your life, then you recognize, ah, there is, that assures me of salvation. And you pass the test of obedience, which is essential for anybody who wants to know if they truly belong to Christ. Check out your life. It's your obedience. Now, verse 4, some people like to claim that they know him. And let me tell you something. In our culture, a Christianized culture to a degree, because of the dissemination of the gospel in Christianity for so long was uh, esteemed generally by the culture, is no problem for, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. In verse 4, the one who says, the one who says uh, in the grammar here is the one who keeps on saying. He repeatedly says, here's the quote, I have come to know him. Come to know him. Uh, I have come, I, I am a Christian. The apostle refutes this profession of faith. It is a profession of faith. He's saying, I know Jesus Christ. But it's an empty claim. In fact, John um, says, and does not keep his commandments. That's a habit. This person who claims to be a Christian, but is not keeping Christ's commandments, he is not doing Christ's will. Uh, that person who practices that, who doesn't do that, John boldly, boldly labels him a liar. He borrows from Jesus' repertoire. Remember Jesus said to his, uh, the religious leaders of Israel, you are of your father, the devil, who is a liar. John says, a person who claims that they're a Christian, but their back lifestyle doesn't back it up. They have a lifestyle of disobedience. That person is nothing but a liar. But a liar. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, British preacher, died 1892. He said this, quote, about lying. In this regard, it is, uh, it is more than a verbal lie, namely a, a doctrinal one. For it is horrible heresy to aver a personal acquaintance with the Savior and live a life of self-pleasing. The two things are utterly incompatible. End of quote. Spurgeon's right. You can't claim to know the Savior and live a sinful life. <laughs> He came to save us from our sins, not only the penalty, but also the power of it. And if you know him, you can't live a sinful life. Please understand that. There are so many people who think uh, that they're Christians who are not. They don't pass the test. 
Don't assure yourself thinking that you are Christians just simply because you prayed a prayer. You check out the life and see is there assurance. How do we know we've come to know him? Verse 3 tells us. We just looked at that. You'll notice in this text as well, he says the truth is not in him. And how does he know this? Simply those who do not obey him, Christ, it demonstrates clearly that the truth is not in them. People who claim to know Christ, but whose lives belie their profession of faith are deceived. Deceived. Ephesians uh, tells us this. Let me ask you if you'd like to take a moment to journey with me to the book of Ephesians. And you can see the deception. And you want to avoid that. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 5. Apostle Paul pens these words that are necessary for people to hear and understand. Um, Verse 5 of Ephesians 5. Let's begin there. Look what it says. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. None. See those sins there? The reason is because those sins are practiced, they're lived in uh, by those individuals. And Paul is saying, you need to understand this certainty. Now, this is some assurance a person needs to have. You're not going to be in the kingdom, eternal kingdom of God and Christ. Because you haven't been transformed. That's why he says in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Professing believers who live a disobedient life, I don't care how they profess, how they claim, I know Jesus, but going into there, what you're going to experience is the wrath of God. Don't let anybody deceive you. There will be those people who tell you, oh, you're okay. You can live a life, uh, you profess Jesus, but you, you don't have anything to do with it. You live a life saying, oh, you're still saved. In fact, there are people who teach that. That's a lie. Clearly contradicts the word of God. Don't be fooled by it. James. It's another place, James 1. James chapter 1, verse 22. It's a place where uh, we're told about the potential for self-deception. <laughs> James one twenty-two. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who uh, delude themselves. Uh, There are the people, but they uh, don't do the work. They're not obeying it. They're deceiving themselves. James 2, since I'm here, I guess I'll look at it too. What use is it, my brethren, If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? 
He gives an illustration of what faith will do in terms of physical provision for others. Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, barren, useless, being by itself. When there is true saving faith, there will be works issuing out, godly deeds issuing forth from it. And I'm not going to expose it to James 2. That's for another time. But I think you get the message. Titus 1.16, there are some people uh, who were claiming uh, to know God. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but their deeds, but by their deeds they deny him. See, the scriptures replete with texts like these that tell us who is in the kingdom and who isn't, who is born again and who isn't. And the life is a, demonstrates this reality. So we have the test of obedience, but we're not done there. The result of obedience. The result of obedience. Let's go to verse 5. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Let's stop there at the end of the sentence. He turns his attention back to the believer now, John does, and those who keep his word. What we see here, the word, the term word refers to the complete revelation of God's will. Whereas the other word for commandments, Jesus, his commandments, his precepts, his directives, here is the complete revelation of the will of God. In that person, the love of God has truly been perfected. But let me explain what the love of God is here. There's debate as to how we handle the grammar here. I um, don't believe it's God's love for us that's mentioned, meant here. I believe it is our love for God. The reason I hold to that position is simply this, because the context is, is talking about what happens to us who have come to know him genuine Christians show their love for God by obedience think about this in the Old Testament God reveals that love for him will be demonstrated by the covenant people Israel in keeping the Ten Commandments you can read it Exodus chapter 20 verse 6 you see that there those who love him will obey him those who hate him do not In the New Testament, it's the same. Jesus lays this down for his men. In the upper room discourse. John 14. I'm, I'm, I'm having y'all turn pages, aren't I? I'm getting your Bible study in for you. John chapter 14. You need to see these verses. These things are important. John chapter 14. You wonder how you love Jesus. Remember that? Remember uh, the bumper sticker? Honk if you love Jesus. I utterly hated it because it was bogus, it's nonsense. Anybody can blow a car horn claiming they love Jesus. Of course, they didn't have cars back in the day, but that's a simple minded, simplistic way of declaring, oh, I love him. Really? Would Jesus ever ask to do anything so silly? No. John 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. 
and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. The father says, Jesus, tell them if they don't love you, um, they don't love me. It's the father's words, Jesus giving. How do you know uh, you love Jesus? Because you felt good about it? You say, oh, just, I just feel good when I hear the name Jesus. That's okay, but that's not the test. Jesus clearly says, you love me when you obey me. So you know. It's nothing to do with an emotional experience necessarily. You can have emotion, that's okay, but that is not the test. Goosebumps don't get you into heaven. Or signify that you're going. There has to be evidence for the love of Jesus. And he clearly declares it. And what he says now, you need to know that word perfected. Somebody said, Oh, that scares the daylights out of me. I'm a Christian and I know I'm nowhere near perfect. That word perfected does not mean perfection without a flaw. The love of God is perfected. Perfected denotes something that has reached its goal. Here, since in the context it's talking about salvation, it's talking about salvation accomplishment. This is the point. Salvation accomplishes in true Christians love for God which is seen in obedience. Is that not clear enough? It's the goal. Because before salvation we didn't love God. Post-salvation we love him. And we exhibit that love by our obedience. Verse 5 continues the bottom of the verse. By this we know that we are in him. Love for God. Salvation accomplishment. We know that we're in him. In him is a phrase repeatedly used by Paul in his writings. But John, of course, uses it here as well. The phrase describes Christians. Christians are spiritually united to Christ. How do I know that I'm in him? Well, in this context, I know that I'm in him because there's love for God in keeping his his commandments. That's how I know. I know that I'm united to Jesus Christ, and Jesus uh, pictures this union between himself and believers in John 15. He says, he is the vine and we are the branches. He uses another metaphor, the body uh, Christ metaphor. Uh, That figure of speech depicts our spiritual union with Christ. To be in Christ, then, is, now get this, is equivalent to the phrases to know him in verse 2 and abides in him in verse 6. Those are equivalent phrases. Saying the same thing. Now whoever abides in him. Says. Says he does. How to walk is. Jesus walked. This is an example of obedience. Jesus is our example. The one who makes a claim that he or she abides in Christ must live his or her life in the same manner as Jesus. Now, you know, walk is a metaphor commonly used in the Old and New Testament uh, to describe behavior, conduct, lifestyle. 
As Jesus conducted his life, we're to emulate him. He is our pattern. He is our model. We imitate Christ. How do we do that? You say, oh, I can't. do I do miracles? No. Do I walk on water? It's a miracle. No. No, 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 none of that. It's walk. As he walked, his behavior, his conduct. That's how we imitate, imitate him. We see his life lived. Now, let me help you with this. Because you say, well, what part? How do we do that? The main thing about the Lord Jesus Christ that you find in Scripture, he was always doing what the Father wanted him to do. He was obeying the Father. John eight twenty nine is one place. And John fourteen thirty one is another. Jesus Christ did the Father's will. In that last passage, John fourteen thirty one, he said thirty one, he says, I do exactly what the Father wants me to do. Exactly. He obeyed the Father, we imitate him by obeying Jesus and the Father. We walk that way. That's true Christianity, people. Now, let me state this, because this, as I conclude, our obedience to Christ is not perfect. The provision of forgiveness when we confess our sins is found in 1 John 1, 9. But here's the deal. The trajectory of our life is one of obedience. We're characterized by it. It is our pattern. You can recognize a pattern. For example, some people get up and go to their job and they go the same way. Same route. Occasionally there's a deviation. Maybe they're going to drop off and pick up some donuts on the way. To get back. But that route is the one they customarily take. Same way. Some of you come to church the same route every Sunday, don't you? It's a pattern with you. Well, as Christians, there's a pattern in our life, a pattern of obedience. That's what the moral test provides for us. I remember um, years ago, it used to bug me when people would have somebody pray uh, to receive Christ, and they would immediately take them to 1 John 5.13 and have them read it, and assure them because they prayed a prayer to receive Christ that very day. You're in heaven. You're on your way. Don't worry about anything. I said, that's balderdash. They didn't exposit or exegete the passage. 5.13 of 1 John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The things you've written, the things we just read. Study. You've got to know what the tests are. If you pass the test, then you know you have eternal life. Not that you pray to prayer. Or that you walked the church aisle. Or that you had a feeling. Or that you were born in a Christian home. Those things aren't the test. You need a biblically provided test. Our test. They alone are our worthy guide. 
Let me add this as well. We grow in obedience, don't we? Amen. Yes, there's a tra- trajectory of obedience, but we're growing. From the moment we're saved, we're growing. This obedience is reflected in personal holiness. Well, how do you grow in personal holiness? That's how you do it. Let me give you some tips. Read the scripture daily. You say you don't have time, really? (laughs) Read the scripture daily. Pray constantly. Give to the Lord's work. Talk about Christ in a pagan culture. Tell you what will happen too. To help you to grow. These are means of grace, but there's another. God will bless you. You experience divine blessing. And as you're growing in obedience, you'll find that you uh, have assurance that you truly belong to Him, that you really are a Christian, that you have eternal life, that you've been born again, that you are on your way to heaven. And from uh, my perspective, and should be yours, there is nothing better to know than that you are Christ and that you are going to spend eternity with him. Nothing better in this world. Nothing better. Everything else you're going to leave behind. Everything else won't matter at some point. But when you come down to taking your last breaths, you know that he is yours and you are his. That's all that's going to matter to you. Going to go and be with Jesus. That song, Rock of Ages, that we sang a little bit ago, and the words in there speaks of us going into his presence, see him sitting on his throne. Oh, man, I'm looking forward to that. Seeing him sitting on his throne, seeing him in his glory. If you belong to Christ, that's what's going to happen to you. Let us pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for our time together this morning in the Word of God. Take these truths and bear them deep within our hearts that they may bear fruit and understanding and living. We might glorify your name. We might have the joy of obedience that John writes about in 1 John. Full joy. Equip us further with the understanding and knowledge of what it really means to be a Christian, the life, how it looks. We pray for someone here who is not a Christian, never really come to know the Redeemer. Save them today. Grant them hearts of repentance and faith. We pray you do these things, um, ultimately, Lord, for your own glory. For that's why the reason that's the reason for everything, your glory. Glorify yourself in saving sinners and continue to sanctify saints. These things we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.